This program is brought to you by Stanford University. I'm Patty Gumport. I'm the Vice Provost for Graduate Education, and I'd like to welcome you to this inaugural event in VPGE's leadership program. This is the first in a series of talks with recognized leaders from several arenas, and our speakers will reflect on their experiences as leaders and offer insights about leading in the world today. We hope these talks will inspire you as you prepare for the challenges ahead. Today, I'm especially pleased that we're launching this series with President Hennessy. In addition to having a most impressive career, he has demonstrated extraordinary support and, dare I say, exceptional leadership in graduate education and advanced study here at Stanford. A few years ago, President Hennessy galvanized the university by convening a commission on graduate education. He charged it to set our course for the future in light of new roles and responsibilities of our graduates. It was his vision that helped us conceive of this stage of your professional development as a critical period of transformation. It's a time when we have a unique opportunity to accelerate and expand your skills, your creativity, and your passion so that you can be more effective and even more bold as you go forth to help solve the world's problems. To this end, the commission recommended that Stanford create the office that I now lead, the VPGE. We embrace our mission by facilitating collaboration. It's essential to innovation. We're thinking big, yet we're starting small. And what defines our work in the VPGE is a simple truth. Our commitment to you is a sacred trust. And we know that you're counting on us as you wrestle with questions of who you are, what you want to accomplish, and how you want to make your mark in a world that very much needs your unique vision and capabilities. President Hennessy has provided the encouragement and crucial resources for us to launch our programs, among them the Stanford Graduate Summer Institute, the new Stanford Interdisciplinary Graduate Fellowship Program, and now this leadership program. So on behalf of the university community, and especially the graduate students, I want to thank you, John, for your foresight and your enthusiastic support. Please join me in thanking him. Two faculty colleagues now serve as associate vice provosts in the VPGE, and they're developing initiatives in leadership and professional development. Professor Sherry Shepard from the School of Engineering and Professor John Boothroyd from the School of Medicine. In addition to this series, Sherry and John are designing workshops on management, communications, and other skill sets that are essential to effective leadership. So stay tuned for details on that and check out our website. We're so fortunate that Sherry and John are serving the university in this capacity. Now I'm going to turn it over to Sherry and she'll introduce the president. Thank you very much. I'm pleased and honored to be able to introduce Dr. John Hennessy. Dr. Hennessy is my boss's 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 boss. <laughs> In other words, he is President Hennessy, Stanford's 10th president, and he assumed this role in 2000. President Hennessy has inspired all of us to stretch further, dream bigger, and really take on significant world problems by, as Patty was describing, some of the interdisciplinary initiatives. He also convened a commission to study graduate education, so it's one of the issues that's forefront in his mind. 
Before being president, Dr. Hennessy was my boss's boss's boss, in other words, the provost. And if the president is like this, the CEO of a company, the provost is the CFO, worrying about budget, infrastructure, and academic health. In this capacity, he helped to grow the biosciences and bioengineering collaborative efforts and um, worked at fostering deeper infrastructure means of those communities to get together. Before being provost, he was my boss's boss, um, namely Dr. Hennessy was Dean Hennessy, and a role that he held for two years. And in that role, he was already starting this idea of interdisciplinary work at that point between the School of Medicine and the School of Engineering. Um, before being dean, um, he was chair of computer science and was and still is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science. And somewhere amid all of those bosses' bosses' roles, um, he founded a company called MIPS Computer Systems, which is now called MIPS Technology. And the core of MIPS is, is an idea called RISC, Reduced Instruction Set Computers. And it's a technology that has revolutionized the computer industry by increasing performance and reducing costs. And if that's not enough of stirring up and affecting institutions and technology, he's co-authored two internationally used undergraduate and graduate textbooks that have really been um, mainstays in um, education for about 20 years. He's a member of the National Academy of Engineering and the National Academy of Science. And at one point, he was a graduate student, like all of you, having gotten his PhD at the University of New York at Stony Brook. One other thing I'd like to um, offer about President Hennessy. Yes, he's been stirring up institutions and technology, but he's also been stirring up graduate students, if you will. And I quote from a letter offered by one of his former graduate students, Joseph Torres, who's now on the faculty at the University of Illinois. Um, Joseph says, Professor Hennessy has had a profound impact on my career. During my years at Stanford, working with him was a great source of joy and excitement for me and for the other 10 to 15 PhD students who had direct interaction with him at the same time. I learned immensely from his insightful analyses of technology trends, ambitious approach to research, impeccable ethical values, and encouraging attitude. After I took a position as assistant professor at the University of Illinois, he has acted as my mentor, true role model, and continuous source of inspiration. I have tried to replicate in my own research group at Illinois all of the qualities that made John Hennessy such a superb advisor and researcher. I have tried to instill in my own students the same joy and values that Professor Hennessy instilled in me. My students are now faculty at other universities, and they are fully aware and proud of their heritage. John, I guess that means you have some academic grandchildren, at least. <laughs> okay. So with that, um, I, I'm very much looking forward to the conversation with Professor um, and, and President um, Hennessy. Um, the conversation will be with my colleague, John Boothroyd, who, as Patty said, is one of my colleagues in the VPG office and also a professor of microbiology and immunology. With that, John. Great. Thank you, Sherry. And, and thank you again, John, for uh, yeah, and, and thanks for championing graduate education. It's really wonderful to see. So um, I'm going to pretend I'm David Letterman here, and these are going to be flying around, so you'll just have to indulge me. This is a, a new skill for me, or not. So it's 2009. Right? Can we fast forward to 2034, and could you say what you hope graduate education will look like at Stanford then? 
Well, I think many aspects of graduate education are likely to remain the same. I think we um, import talent from all over the United States, from all over the world. I hope that remains a vibrant aspect. And we, re we bring in the best and brightest minds, the, most, uh, the people who really want to make a difference, who want to learn a new field and become contributors in the world. So I hope that part of it remi remains the same. I, I really hope that we um, educate uh, students who will go on to major leadership roles, who will be adept at uh, living in the 21st century, which I think increasingly is characterized by the fact that people do not have a single fixed career during their lives, but often uh, undergo careers which shift over time, whether they're here for a professional degree in the business school or the law school or an, M, uh, uh, an MS in engineering, or they're here for a PhD. I think we're going to increasingly see that people's careers shift over time, and they have to draw on different, different skill sets. Um, so I think we want graduate education to reflect that view. Uh, obviously, in 25 years, there'll be fields we, we don't even anticipate today. Uh, the field of bioengineering and our new department there, I think, which is now just a few years old, that's an area which certainly has been around for a while, and the discussion about making it a separate department has probably gone on for a decade. But if you go back 20 years ago or 25 years ago, it didn't really exist as a standalone field. There were a few engineers perhaps working on biological applications, but the field did not have the depth and the amount of innovation and its own um, uh, fields that it was exploring as it does now. So I think we'll see, we'll see, changes, um, we'll see changes like that. Uh, I think we will see um, more growing demand for people who are deeply trained at the graduate level, who go in not only to academic careers, but a much larger variety of careers. I would hope that increasingly the United States has done something that I think I admire in many of the countries in Asia, which is the very best deeply educated people go into roles in government and other important roles in society. Um, we could use more PhDs, more well-educated people in our government. I think we'd be better off um, than we are today. And so I'd like to see that change occur and that we're preparing students for that kind of career as well. So we, we leapt into the future. Can we leap back into the past now and, and just learn a little bit more about where, did you, where do you come from? What was, um, who were role models or mentors when you were a child or a teenager in school or family? Yeah, well, I came from a mother and a father, just like most other yeah. people, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and uh, my father was an engineer who worked in the aerospace uh, industry during the post-Sputnik uh, years, I think. Um, I still remember him uh, in those days. The rush for the US to catch up was so acute that uh, as an engineer, um, he would work different shifts. So I still remember him working a morning shift a late day shift which went from like 8 to midnight and, and a shift that went from 11 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning. And that's how crazy it was in the, po the post-Sputnik um, era. Um, so he inspired me to get interested in science and engineering. Um, I worked on, um, in, actually in high school for a science fair project, 
Um, I worked with a fellow nerd on um, a tic-tac-toe machine that was one of the winners in the science fair. And we didn't know, we didn't know anything about the theory, so we worked out how to win it tic-tac-toe by hand without uh, realizing, of course, once you know the formalism, this is not a very hard problem, but we didn't know it. And we built it all out of surplus relays that we bought from this military surplus electronics place. Um, and, but it really, everybody in my class was impressed, including the person who would become my future wife. Um, because of course, if you, if you go first, you never lose a tic-tac-toe. And most people, a, a remarkable number of people don't understand enough about the game that they always go in the wrong place. So w once you go in a corner, they go in the middle of the corner and you win. And so uh, it was a big hit. That got me interested in, in computing. Of course, when I started as an undergraduate, there were no computer science majors in the, U in the United States yet. So I started out in electrical engineering, but focused on a computer option. And then uh, got interested in my junior year. I got involved in, in undergraduate research. Um, became, and taught a, I taught the equivalent of a beginning programming session, sort of doing the recitation problem solving section for the students. Um, that got me interested in teaching, and I decided to go pursue a PhD. Um, so I then switched to computer science. and found out there was a lot of mathematics that I didn't have that I should have had if I was going to go into computer science. So I had to play catch up on that and learn to take some finite math as opposed to some continuous math that most EEs are versed in uh, and headed off on that. I then had a remarkably lucky experience as a graduate student. Um, probably oh, two months after I started, uh, somebody walked in with what turned into my thesis problem, uh, which who was a guy who happened to be um, at the Brookhaven National Lab who was interested in real-time control to build a device that would examine people who are working at the lab for bone density changes uh, that could be caused by incidental exposure to radiation. Um, so at this time, no personal computers, microprocessors just coming out, and the question was, could you design a microprocessor that could do an accurate uh, real-time control problem uh, with these very primitive 8-bit and 16-bit computers at the time. Uh, so I started working on the problem, uh, had the great good fortune um, to uh, be working on the problem just as this whole field exploded and it became a major uh, focus for people uh, in the area. So um, it was a good time to be working on this problem. I finished my thesis, came to Stanford, and had the good sense not to leave since then. So what about mentors early on? So certainly, I had a faculty member who got me interested in computing, who um, really got me hooked up in my undergraduate research problem. Uh, and then a another a, a person was a graduate student, in the, actually in the master's program there, who was sort of my supervisor on this research program. Um, and they, they certainly uh, encouraged me to think about pursuing a PhD. And then, of course, my PhD advisor. And I had a co-advisor as well. Uh, so my advisor was sort of in the programming language area. My co-advisor was in the hardware area, which was a good match because my work was kind of striding this, you know, this real-time control area, which involves both some software but also some deep understanding of the hardware issues and the limitations. So it, it really combined. And one professor had a joint appointment in electrical engineering but was in the computer science department. The other, the other individual, actually, my advisor at, at Stony Brook, um, had been a double E doing electromagnetics, doing antenna design, actually, who took advantage of a program that NSF had in the early days to um, help 
people move into computer science as a burgeoning field. Actually came to Stanford and did a, did a program at Stanford um, and then went back and joined uh, what was then a brand new computer science department at Stony Brook. So the Stanford connection goes way back. Uh. So, so we talked about a little bit about mentors in the past. Do you still have mentors? I'm sure in a different kind of way. But if so, what sort of relationship do you have with mentors? Well, Abraham Lincoln, but I have to stick to biographies <laughs> for him. So it's uh, certainly I try to learn uh, different skills from different people. So the, from the board of trustees, um, certainly they, uh, they are my boss. So I guess they're Sherry's boss's 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 boss. Um, uh, but I certainly learn, and they bring all kinds of different experience and background uh, to the challenges of leading the university. Um, I've had, when I started a company, I was certainly um, looking for mentors, and people would help me uh, learn some of the lessons of leadership in that, in that setting. Um, but I try to learn from uh, people who are my peers as well, whether it's something that one of our deans or the provost brings to it. Um, so we, have a, we tend to have a working style that's um, very open, both with what you might think of as the uh, administrative leadership of the university, all the vice presidents and our general counsel, and the academic leadership, all the deans and vice provosts. And I think that leads to the opportunity for not only um, different people to contribute ideas, but to enhance your understanding how different parts of the organization work and, and you can approach the challenges in that parts of the organization. So this is a, an audience of graduate students and postdocs. If you think back to when you were a graduate student, what do you wish somebody had told you about leadership that might have saved you, saved you a lot of pain and suffering mm. over the last few mm. years? So I think the things that I had to learn the hard way um, probably somebody should have told me um, never do something, never finish something, never submit a paper, never complete a piece of work, never participate in something unless you're willing to really give it your all and make it the best you can be. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think you, you learn the hard way. Um, and uh, I, I, one of the things I've had to learn is um, don't accept commitments that you're not serious about contributing to. It's very easy to get overloaded. Or, for example, for a young faculty member, it's very easy to take on too many graduate students. Because more graduate students always seems like a good thing. Um, they, they can help you with your work. They can bring new ideas. But as an advisor, you really you have a limited amount of bandwidth. You're better off working with a fixed number of graduate students, really trying to work with them intensely, inspire them, get them to achieve their best, then you are um, spreading yourself so thin that you're not able to devote the time that, mm. that it takes sometimes to working with them. I had to learn, well, when I, particularly when I started a company, I had to learn a lot of lessons the hard way in a compressed uh, time because you don't, have the, you don't quite have the luxury in a company of uh, delaying decisions that you sometimes in academia, you can move a little more slowly sometimes than you can in a, in, in a startup setting. So do you feel that your sense of what leadership means has changed since, for example, when you were a graduate student to now? Mm. I think absolutely. I think when you're 
you know, in a graduate st setting or even a faculty member setting as a young faculty member, um, uh, leadership is much more uh, a consensus-driven kind of environment. Surely there's inspiration going on and inspiring people to try new uh, directions or, or innovate in a different way. But the challenge, I think, as you take on more senior roles um, becomes the challenge of making the difficult decisions and standing up when the difficult decisions are necessary. And that's a very different experience than, um, than forming a group where you're trying to optimize the outcome of the group, but all outcomes are good, uh, so to speak. That's a much easier uh, situation than when there's real dissension in a group and you've got to make a tough decision. So you've ended up as the president of Stanford University. When you were a graduate student, what was your game plan? What was your the goal you wanted to be. Was it president of Stanford University? Oh, no, 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 no. I kind of guess not. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to be a faculty member. Mm -hmm. And I, I, when I finished graduate school, I interviewed only for faculty positions. Uh, Stanford, I think, was the 14th place I interviewed at. So I started applying. You know, our academic calendar runs a little late in the year. And I started applying very early in the year. So I started interviewing um, fairly early on. Um, and I guess I had an interesting thesis topic, so I had some offers pretty quickly. And, and you know, Stanford runs on a slightly different academic calendar, so I didn't end up coming here until probably late March or something like that. And by then, I had several offers in my hand. And, um, but I wanted to be a faculty member from the very beginning. I didn't consider any uh, research laboratories or mm. industrial career of any sort. Um, and I really loved being, uh, being a faculty member of those. Being a graduate student and being an assistant professor, probably some of the happiest days of my life. I mean, I probably wor I worked intensely hard in both settings. I had no money in both settings. Um, but it, it was really great. I mean, it's so intellectually engaging. You're in the middle of it. And, and your ability to focus and really to get a lot done was just exciting. So, so many people are. Uh, considering these multiple alternative futures for themselves. And, and often it comes down to corporate or academic. And you've been in both camps. You've been in the, in the corporate world as well. You voted with your feet. You decided to return full-time to Stanford. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the motivation behind that, that decision and, and sure. maybe give some guidance to that choice? Sure. I, I loved my time in a startup environment also. Um, it's tremendously exciting in a different way to work on a product and then see it go out the door and having people use it is really, um, is really exciting and it is thrilling in a very different way. It demands a set of, it demands a focus, I think, that is incredibly intense and a sense of teamwork um, that is, uh, in a startup environment anyway, um, even more intense than a research group in a university because there's a time pressure element to it that's quite different. Mm -hmm. I, um, I came back because I like working with students. In the end, that was the key determinant for me. And I just found that, that while I loved having colleagues who were accomplished and who could make contributions, um, I found the vitality and the freshness that students bring to um, to an activity to really be something that I, I missed very much. And I missed teaching as well. 
when I was in that setting. Um, so I made the decision on, on that basis, um, and it was the right decision. I mean, coming to Stanford was the best thing I did. Starting a company was the second best. They were both, both taught me different kinds of skills. So different leaders have different leadership styles. How would you describe yours? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think. Or how would others describe yours is maybe that is even a even harder better question. question. <laughs> You'd have to ask them, yeah, I suppose. Right. Um, I think um, it's consensus based, but it's decisive. So I do try to drive decisions to the extent that I can drive it by getting enough consensus. Um, I'll drive it, but in the end, a decision has to be made, and so I will drive to a decision. Um, it's probably a little bit fearless, meaning I'm willing to take some risk in doing um, new things. Uh, if I believe it's the right direction, um, I, I think there's probably too much fear of failure in many instances. And if you're going to be in research, you've got to get over fear of failure because it mm -hmm. happens all the time and some things just don't work out. Um, and so I, I tend to be willing to do that. Here, here's an example. If you think, you know, when I talk to a lot of colleagues around at other universities and we talk about interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary work, the thing you always hear is, well, you know, so difficult to work out all the bureaucratic issues between departments and to worry about how we're going to deal with tenure and how we're going to inspire young faculty to do this and how they're going to find. And this is just university bureaucracy getting in the way of, they're not arguing that it's not the right thing to do. They believe it's the right thing to do. They let the bureaucracy get in the way. Well, that's a kind of silly way to approach the problem. So my approach isn't that I, I'd say the bureaucracy can't become a bottleneck. It can become a bottleneck. But we have to think about ways to sweep that out of the way. So I'm, I'll tend to uh, take risk. I think anybody would say, too, my leadership style is I get very enthusiastic about the things I believe in. So, so a lot of people talk about <coughs> the differences between leadership and management mm. and whether there is a difference, whether you can be one without being the other. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. Um, so. What I do and the people that I recruit to positions in the university, whether it's on the academic side or the administrative side, I recruit leaders. I don't recruit managers. They may have a management component to their job. After all, the provost does have to get a budget done. The budget does have to ensure that there's more money coming in than there's money going out in the end. Um, but we're doing, we are absolutely trying to recruit leaders, people who will make um, important decisions in the right way. So I, I, I believe in that. Like many jobs, there are, there are I's to dot and there are T's to cross. And you have to do them and you have to have a team that can do that. But first of all, if that was the job, you wouldn't need people who, um, really had the skill set to be great leaders. You could get away with people who were, who were paper pushers. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, if, if that was the job, I wouldn't have any interest in doing it. I'd find it too boring if it, if it was. So. And, and by the way, we will, I've got a few more questions here, but then we will be opening it up to all of you. So please be thinking about questions you'd like to ask President Hennessy about leadership, preferably. 
Um, so how did you learn to lead? Did you read books, take courses, have coaches? Yeah, emulate? it's an interesting uh, trial by fire, mm. probably. I mean, uh, go, some things I think you can, you can get by osmosis. I think you, know, you, learn, you learn gradually. I actually believe that people who go into leadership roles learn by successively um, jumping larger and larger hurdles. The really big hurdles, nobody jumps them on first uh, attempt. They smash into the side of the hurdle and fall backwards. It's very hard to do, um, if the, but particularly because the really tough decisions, um, there's never unanimity on a tough decision. There are always people who are on the other side of it. And being able to stand back, make the right decision, knowing that in, in some, with some objective system, that's the right decision for the majority of a community, but that you will disappoint some people. That happens all the time. Um, and so that's a skill I think you, you learn only by doing. So you, uh, for me, it was learning first gradually with um, in my own research group, how to lead with a group of graduate students. And since my work is all in experimental computer science, it really is teamwork. It's really a, a, a group of people working together towards a common goal um, with different responsibilities within the group. But it's about creating that sense of responsibility within the team because if the project is going to be successful, if we're going to get to building a prototype, let's say, that we can demonstrate um, that our insights and our innovations are really um, novel and effective, then everybody's got to do their part. And so you've got to be able to inspire and have a sense that the graduate student team that you've built is committed to one another because the success of the whole project uh, depends on their ability to make their contribution. So that was a great starting place to learn some of the hands-on leadership. When I went to a company and I was the founder, I was never the CEO, I was the chief scientist, which meant I had a lot of power over the science, but nobody worked for me. Um, so uh, it, it, which was a perfect position given that I was going to come back. My plan was always to come back to the university. Um, it, as the founder, you do have to stand up in some difficult times. And the company, after about a year and a half, close to two years, had to do a significant layoff. And so that was my first experience getting involved in that and um, getting up and standing up in front of the company and saying, we've done this layoff. And this was at a time where probably 90% of the people knew everybody in the company. Because it was still small. We were 150 people, maybe 200 people. Um, so getting up and getting through that, boy, that was trial by fire. But then you learn. If we didn't do the layoff, the company would have gone out of business. That was the alternative. So the question was, are we going to be a team of 100 people that goes forward with this technology that we still all believe in, or are we just going to close the door and let it go out of business? So that was a tough way to learn that lesson, but you do, you do learn the lesson. If you think about some of the things I've had to learn that way, um, you can see why I've been so excited about some of the things in the, in the summer program that we're doing for graduate students that really help to build some of these leadership skills because it's much easier to learn it in a classroom, to learn it in, a, in an experiential setting like that than to have to learn it in real time on the job. 
So once you've done that, then you can uh, try other things. I'm a big reader of biography and history. Um, you know, I'm a great admirer of Lincoln and tough leadership. Everybody should read Team of Rivals because it's a really great book about how to lead. And to lead a diverse team, that's not necessarily uh, all 100% in agreement about how you should approach challenging, challenging problems. Um, and so you, I think you do, do that by, you do it step by step. I think it's one of the reasons that sometimes when you see people who are, appear to have very promising skills and they leap from a position here to a position much further up in the hierarchy, they find it incredibly difficult because they find themselves forced to do the kinds of things without having to take in some of the intermediate steps. So I actually think those intermediate steps prepare you for um, for standing up in the situation where you're going to have people who say some nasty things about you um, and having the confidence to know that you've made the right decision, you're doing the right thing um, for the institution that you're trying to lead. So among the individuals out here, we have historians, we have chemists, we have engineers, et cetera, et cetera, right across the, the spectrum of the university, which is very different from probably the, the kinds of people you had at MIPS. Uh, in terms of the, the intellectual breadth, how is it different when you're trying to lead a group as diverse as this versus, say, in a corporate environment? I think the complexity about a university really comes, it does come somewhat from the breadth of individuals, but it probably comes e equally from uh, the complex notion of what people's objectives are. In a company, there's at least one objective, the company should make money and make a profit and continue to pay all its employees, benefit its shareholders. It's a much simpler objective function. Um, in a university, people, are, um, people have their own uh, agenda thereafter. The university has some goals that it's after. Um, so you've got a much more complicated objective function. Within, even within separate disciplines, the tracks people think about are different. Um, you know, in science and engineering, um, people think about getting a really uh, great start on their career, um, making important contributions early on. Um, you know, for historians, their best work often comes quite, quite a bit later in life um, and benefits from a long, in-depth exposure to a field and a sense of perspective on it. So that's a fact of life about a university. It's a very different mix of skill sets, what it has is it has this intellectual vitality about it that is really dramatic, I think. And that's one of the things, you don't quite find that in the, in the company. Um, you know, sales guys are interested in selling product. Mm -hmm. you know, engineers are interested in designing it. Um, and there's usually some, uh, a love-hate relationship between sales and engineering. Uh, engineering loves the salespeople when they're selling their product, but most of the rest of the time they can't stand them. It's an interesting, interesting balancing act. Very different from inside a university in that sense. So this is a hard question, but can you tell us about the hardest decision you've had to make that you can tell us about? Because I, I suspect the hardest <laughs> ones have been you know, personal uh, firings, et cetera, that are not appropriate. But some really difficult decision uh, and how you went about reaching that decision. What was the process? You know, one of the, one of the most difficult decisions um, we've had to deal with um, in the context of the university was probably um, uh, going through the general use permit process. 
um, when there were various proposals that the university um, make long-term commitments to sacrifice its ability to use some of its lands in return for the general use permit. And there was an opportunity to take what one might call the, um, the short-term over the long-term benefit, take the quick deal, um, compromise on some things that maybe were core principles for you, uh, get a deal done quickly with minimal political exposure or heat over it. Um, and so that was one alternative. And I sat down and reflected on it. And I thought a lot about the fact that David Starr Jordan, our first president, had had this job less than 100 years earlier. He had had the job when Stanford was really um, in the middle of a barren, other than a few uh, fruit trees, uh, a barren area where there was no development. Uh, there was no Palo Alto, you know, and the, there was no Palo Alto train station. We went and picked up the students with the Marguerite, which was a horse-drawn wagon, uh, over at the Menlo Park train station, <laughs> right? And Mayfield was this little frontier uh, community down where California Avenue is that had the first bar in town. Um, and uh, it was a very different environment. Um, now, I started thinking, suppose David Starr Jordan had said, well, you know, this university will never have more than 3,000 students. It'll never have very many employees. We don't want a hospital or a medical school down here. You know, why don't we just give away some of this land or, you know, do something else with it? Imagine what would have happened. The medical school would still be up in San Francisco. They wouldn't have added basic science departments, John, so you wouldn't be a faculty mm -hmm. member here. Mm -hmm. um, the engineering school never would have been able to uh, have the growth that it subsequently had, or the sciences, which really grew in the, in the post-World War II era and really grew into their own. Um, and Stanford wouldn't have been able to blossom. Silicon Valley would have never happened, and we'd be in a very different situation. So I took this long-term perspective. And I think one of the obligations you have as a leader of an institution is to think about that long-term perspective. Think about the issue of precedent. If you surrender some fundamental right of the university, in this case, we were being asked to surrender something that the Stanfords had put in the founding grant, namely that the land of the university never be sold and it be used for the purposes of the university. So we decided to stick to our guns. But that meant it was an extremely difficult, um, very difficult battle um, between uh, various uh, political uh, leaders who wanted to extract something from the university and the leadership of the university. Luckily, I think in the end, once we explained the situation, um, we had the support of most of the university community and the support of the trustees um, behind us. So we were able to move forward and come to a resolution, which in the end was a fine resolution. What gets you bouncing out of bed in the morning, assuming you bounce out of bed? Oh, you know, there's something, it, it, one of the great things about the university is there's something really absolutely thrilling all the time. And I do bounce out of bed, usually without an alarm. I guessed. Usually without an alarm, uh, except when I'm a little jet lagged and then I might need an alarm to get up. But um, yeah, I'm usually, there's usually, there's something thrilling happening all the time. And whether it's our new uh, pre-court 
Institute for Energy that I'm just tremendously excited about. I think there's an opportunity for Stanford to really be a leader in moving this country and the world to a new energy regime, which we desperately need to do, not only for the economic, and, but most importantly for the issues of global warming. I, that's a wonderful opportunity. The fact that we've been able to inspire donors, that we're going to be able to support a phenomenal number of graduate students, have new faculty appointments in a time which otherwise it's a tough financial time in the university. So that keeps me going. I, I see the students just doing tremendous things. We were just down in Los Angeles for an alumni event before last weekend, and um, we had a group of students talking from the um, uh, course uh, that's a joint business school engineering course, Entrepreneurial Design for Extreme Affordability, talking about this $25 baby incubator. Mm -hmm. And you just see our, uh, our alumni look at this, and here's an incubator that doesn't cost $25,000, the typical price for an incubator, that costs $25 and is usable without electricity in rural areas where babies often died from hypothermia. That's just inspiring. And our, the students, both undergraduate and graduate students, they're doing things every single week that you hear about that just make you so proud to be associated with this university. I've got two more questions, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, do you think only a few people have the innate ability to be a leader? And, and I think I know what your answer is going to be. And so anticipating it, um, I may disagree with you. But the people who don't feel that they maybe have all those innate abilities, what advice would you give to them about how to learn to be a leader? So I think there are some things you can learn, I think, by, by reading other experiences, by um, getting involved in courses which try to uh, teach leadership. Yeah, really, what it, a course that teaches leadership, what it really does is it gives you an opportunity to experiment in, in leading in, in uh, situations which are simulated rather than the real situation, but they help you build the skills. They help you think about how you might react in that kind of situation. And then I think you have to do it. You have to get out there. You have to do it. You learn it by practicing just as, you, just as one learns to uh, be a good speaker or be a good writer. You learn by practicing. I don't know any other way to, to do it. Um, I, certainly, there's some comfort level. You have to get over um, some tendency we all have to not put ourselves in difficult situations uh, and realize that you can't always, can't always avoid those situations. But I think lots of people can, be, can learn that. I, I don't think it's innate. For some people, they are innate leaders. They have a certain mm -hmm. skill set. I don't know where um, Lincoln learned how to use a sense of humor at, right, at just the right moment. He clearly did learn that somewhere along the way. But it's not exactly clear where, as a child growing up in a log cabin, he learned that situation. But he did learn it. He did learn that skill somewhere. So we have here a group of future leaders. What special challenges do you think they're going to face? And what advice would you give them about facing those challenges? I think the world is going to expect and demand more of people who have had the privilege of being educated at an extraordinary place like Stanford or of the, uh, the other great universities in the US. I think the world is going to demand more from whatever, whatever role they go into life, whether they go become a faculty member, they're going to demand more of the contributions that they make as a faculty member, that they 
because we are, even in a private institution like Stanford, we're a, we're a pseudo-public institution. We're funded largely by the federal government. Um, we all receive, we're, we're tax-free, so we receive the benefit of not paying taxes. So we are, we are a public service in that sense. I think it's true in a university. I think it's true in companies. Uh, you see what's happening now in the aftermath of the financial crisis. I think CEOs are going to be held to much higher standards to talk about um, how, how does their work contribute to the public good. Um, and I, I think that, and you see that coming across government now increasingly. I think we're going to see that more and more. Mm -hmm. People are going to be expected to talk about how they serve not only the shareholders, or in the case of a university, let's say, the students and the, the community here at the university, faculty and staff who work here, um, but how we serve the greater world. And I think that's true across every walk of life. Um, so I think we should prepare ourselves for that. At the same time, um, that's a thrilling opportunity um, that people will say, you know, I expect you to make a contribution in making the world better. That's a, that's a wonderful opportunity to have at the same time. And I guess we shouldn't wait for the future to do that, right? No, we should start now. So let's throw it open. We've got two mics, uh, one on either side. And Anika and Sherry are going to be running up and down. So we'll just switch from side to side. There's one up there. And then. And we would ask people to say their name and maybe where in the university they reside. Yeah, so please say, say your name. and. and what program you're in, for example, whether you're a graduate student and so on, what program or postdoc? So my name is Amy, and I'm a PhD student in the medical school in the immunology program. And my question involves support networks. And as leaders, we seldom get anywhere without help from others. So could you speak a little bit about your support network and its importance? Sure. I, I think that's absolutely true. I think in leadership, Look, in all leadership positions, there's some times where you feel um, you've been cast a little bit adrift, and you're a little unclear, and being able to talk to somebody about the situation. Now, certainly it can start with a spouse or, or a close friend, but often you need somebody who knows a little bit more about the um, internal operation of whatever institution you're in. Um, so that, I uh, have several people, um, both some of the former presidents of the institution. Um, the provost and I work incredibly close, closely. We really collaborate on a lot of things. We exchange a lot of things, I think, and um, we find ourselves uh, agreeing uh, most of the time, but not always, and that's a, that's a good thing. And the trustees, I think, uh, certainly I use the trustees as a, as a network to really uh, reflect on things. You know, it's interesting you asked this question because last year I was at an at a alumni meeting that we had uh, that brought in alumni volunteers from all across the United States. And we had um, one of our alums that had come from a PhD program in engineering. And she was off um, teaching at a very different institution. She was a Latina. Um, and she lamented the fact that she didn't have the kind of support network she had found at Stanford, and that she had found it extremely difficult to be both a woman and a person of color at an institution that had mostly males and mostly white males. 
and how difficult she was finding because she didn't have exactly that support network. She didn't have anybody she could talk to in the setting that understood the, the, that particular institution. And I think that really drove home um, the importance of that and the difficulty that some people may have in some situations in finding that. Um, and I think we've seen that time and time again. I know in my own field in computer science, um, one of the things that, that developed now probably 20, 25 years ago was a network of women who were in faculty and research lab positions who would mentor other young women, women in the field at a time when there still weren't very many, there still aren't very many women in computer science, but would help them think about career choices and opportunities. I, I think it's very important and, and a critical issue for success in many situations. Hi, my name is Ali Valenzuela. I'm a PhD candidate in political science. Uh, thanks for being with us uh, this afternoon. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, creating or the strategies that have been useful for you in creating this sense of shared responsibility that you talked about at, at all levels of, of leadership that you've experienced, especially given the, the very independent personalities and, and some of the objectives, I think, individual objectives that people have in a, in a setting like this. Yeah, I think um, you know it's probably somewhat easier to do within a within a research group when you start and people are working and there were and and graduate students do have very close relationships often with their immediate colleagues. So uh, I've often found you know I used to tell my own graduate students um, you should ask somebody else in the group to read that draft of your thesis chapter before you give it to me because you'll get some immediate feedback from them, and then my feedback will be even more useful because it can focus on the issues that perhaps are, are not as easily or caught on first reading by one of your colleagues. And they used to do all their, for, for orals exams, they used to get together and rehearse for one another so that they would really be prepped. And I said, you know, you have to be really tough on one another because otherwise some faculty member is gonna be tough on you. And that remember that when there's a PhD oral, I said, you're not the only person being examined. The quality of my advising is being examined at the same time. So we're both on, uh, we're both on probation at that moment, and we both want to do well. Um, but I think as you do that, um, you know, when we hire people into leadership positions in the university, I remind them that their job is certainly to lead their department or lead their school or lead their unit in the university. But at the same time, they're a member of the university leadership and they are expected to contribute to the health and the vitality of the whole organization. Um, and that's a key, that is a key factor um, in thinking about that. Someone who just wants to say, well, I want to go off and run my own school and not think about its contribution or its role in the university, at least while I'm president, we wouldn't hire that individual. And I think that's, that's had an interesting impact as we've tried to develop some of these new cross-school initiatives, the willingness of the deans to do that and to, f and to support that activity has been much better than it would have been if we hired people who thought they were running independent city-states um, that owed no allegiance or support to the central organization. Um, so I, I think it's important, people selection. I think the most important thing that you do when you lead a larger organization is you pick the people to help lead the rest of the organization, because it's certainly not one person who does it all. Hi, my name is John. I'm a master's student in computer science. 
Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on, if you're passionate about making a difference in a particular area, how do you find opportunities to lead and make that difference? And how do you earn people's trust to gain the right to lead? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, I'm, I've always been, being a, in computer science, um, it's a discipline where uh, opportunities are created constantly by technology shifts. And so um, most of my research and my activities has been driven by that observation that when there's a shift in the underlying technology, there's an opportunity at least. There's the possibility that something radically new uh, can be done. And even my own work on risk really came about from the fact that there was a shift in computer technology into, um, into the integrated circuits and the microprocessor becoming dominating old style the way computers used to be designed before you were all born. Um, uh, so that, that was a key observation. We didn't know when we started our research project, we didn't know what the key um, concepts on which, the, on which the risk technology was built, what those concepts would be. We just suspected that because of this technology shift, there would be an opportunity. So I think I've used that, that kind of insight again and again. I mean, when we tr put together the bioengineering stuff, um, it was really based on the insight that the biological sciences were progressing at an enormous rate. They'd built a whole new plateau of knowledge, and that that knowledge would be applicable, and that engineers could use that insight in the same way they had used advances in chemistry and physics and mathematics to make contributions in other fields that they could then use that inside to make contributions into the, into the bio field. Um, so that kind of notion of paradigm shift. Um, so I look for that. And you, and you also look for problem challenges. And energy is, a, energy is something that's driven um, not necessarily by the fact that we have a fundamental uh, shift in the underlying technology, but the fact that we've got a monstrous problem that's going to force us to change, uh, change technologies. So um, I, think, I think I look for that. Um, then building up, how do you build up some uh, consensus or drive behind it? I think you, you then begin to pick people who are willing to bet on it, who are willing to make the change. And that often starts, starts with younger people. Um, younger people are often willing to uh, take that chance and help build consensus and help drive. Of course, there is an element of trust. Um, once I'd started one company, it was much easier to help get another company started, um, help put together a team. Some of it was what you had learned, but some of it was a sense that you had some knowledge that had been gained in that process as well. So once one has made some contributions and been successful, um, then people are a lot more willing to let you take on uh, other responsibilities. Hi, uh, my name is Bill Carazella. I'm a master's student in the School of Education. Um, early on, you talked about um, struggling in your days financially, or not struggling, but just worried about finances in your PhD study days. And then you've also talked about public service. What advice do you provide for students now getting out, and a lot of times a lot more debt these days than in days past? Um, what advice do you give to students that are weighing those kinds of decisions? Yeah. I think it is one of the, you're alluding to, I think what is one of the hardest problems when we think about people 
going into careers in education, for example, um, in K-12 education, or going to careers in government where they're making enormous uh, financial sacrifices in order to do that. Um, I think it's very, it's very challenging. We've obviously tried to do some things with loan forgiveness programs to try to get over that. And I think that's an area where I think I'd like to see us continue to do some um, building because I think if people are willing to make that personal sacrifice, um, that all of society and the university should be helping them. It's something that, uh, and it, one of the things I found amazing is that our alumni believe that. Our alumni believe that if somebody wants to go to the education school and go into K-12 education, wants to go to the business school and then go work in nonprofits or the law school and work in public interest law, that our alumni are willing to say, well, that's something we want to make an investment in. Not everybody needs to go to Wall Street, be the corporate lawyer, start the next dot-com, um, that we need really educated people to go do these other roles um, as well. Um, I, I, I think we do need to think as a country um, about what kind of people we want to attract into these roles. Um, I, had a, I remember a meeting I was at with, uh, with some leaders from the Carnegie Foundation, and we were talking about K-12 teachers. And I said, well, I think the university can attract better people, um, more talented people, more committed people into the role of being a K-12 teacher. But I think what society has to decide is that it's willing to let those people have a reasonable life after they make that kind of uh, commitment. And that is still a challenge I think we're, we're going to have to continue to work on. In the middle here. Hi, my name is Lee Moore, and I'm an uh, applied physics PhD student. As a leader outside of your institution, you're representing it. So have there ever been times when you've had to act differently because you are representing Stanford, or has this affected your life outside of your job? Sure. I think um, you, uh, you, one of the things you find out when you lead an institution is that you can't just take off your jacket and pretend you're a regular person again. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Um, you're on the job in lots of times when you don't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily think you're on the job. Uh, it also means that you have to be careful about um, how you voice personal opinions so that they're not taken as an institutional viewpoint or a command to, to, for everybody in the community to take a particular stance on an issue. So we, for example, we are very careful I rarely will or never will take a position on a matter that's before the voters, let's say, whether it's a politician or a proposition or something else, um, because I think that would inevitably be taken as a university position and a, um, a view of how the 15,000 students, 10,000 employees, not counting the hospital, um, should vote on a particular issue. And I don't feel that I've been put in this position to tell people how to vote on particular issues. Now, if the issue is one that really involves the health of the university and the institution, then it's a different situation. So we have had situations like that. We had that with respect to, for example, the Supreme Court case on affirmative action, where we felt that um, if the Supreme Court um, completely overturned some of the earlier precedents, that it would affect 
the quality of our institution and the ability of us to self-govern and decide what was best for the academic setting. But in other cases, despite the fact that I have a personal viewpoint on them, I do have to be careful about not voicing that as the kind of the institutional view. So I think we have time for two last questions because then we have a, a quick reception, so please. Hi, my name is Nick Koshnick and I'm a PhD in applied physics. One of the questions related to leadership versus management, and you said you choose leaders. Uh, Stanford certainly has the intellectual leadership rivaled by none, perhaps. <laughs> and, uh, but management uh, really affects graduate student lives, uh, particularly as you know, uh, professors lead their small research groups. And I think a lot of graduate students uh, have some questions about the way professors lead or manage, uh, and how, how can you compete with industry in making the best managers as well as the best mm. intellectual leaders? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a very good question. I mean, I think um, we don't necessarily teach faculty how to work well and be good advisors. We just expect them to pick it up. Um, and some, and we're, we're lucky because a lot of faculty do manage to do it well. Um, and occasionally, um, we figure out that somebody needs some help, and we figure out how to get them some help from their other um, colleagues. But just like we don't necessarily um, uh, give them any instruction on how to be a good teacher, um, we don't necessarily, that's probably, we could probably do a better job of that. We could probably do a better job so that the fire alarm didn't have to go off before we said, well, we have a faculty member who needs to really get some counseling on how to be a better mentor and really doesn't understand the how to um, work with graduate students in a way that's appropriate. Um, one of the remarkable, I was over in China um, uh, summer before this one, the uh, last one, and uh, I was on a, a panel with R Rick Levin, the president of Yale, um, and we were talking about the role of graduate education in the United States. And, and I said, well, my graduate students, they're, my, they're part of my team. They're my peers. We work together. We work as colleagues. It's not a master-slave, um, feudal-lord uh, and serf relationship. It's not that relationship. Um, I said, we encourage them to ask questions in class. We encourage them to challenge us. Oh, in the back of the room, the mouths just dropped, and they just <laughs> thought, you know, this isn't the way it gets done. You don't, you don't actually have questions in a class, do you? Yes, we have questions, tough questions. We expect them to challenge the professor. And we interact in a, in a way that's very different. Um, and I, I think that's at the heart of what makes uh, graduate education in this country work really well. But we could make a better investment in teaching people how to. There's also clearly a mentoring role. And we could make a better investment in that, probably uh, helping people learn how to do that well. And I, I can't resist uh, making the plug. That's what we're trying to do today, is to, is to begin the process of giving you all the training so that when you're in whatever position, be it faculty, be it in, is every one of you will be in leadership, every one of you, to give you that skill set so that you're not floundering, being brilliant, but not terribly good at the management part. So. I couldn't resist. So start, with smaller, start with a smaller graduate student group. Yeah. Always start small. You can always add people. I think every junior faculty member I know who's grown their group really quickly finds that they don't have the skills to manage it. Right. So last question. Sir. Uh, 
I'm Jude. I'm a PhD student in the mechanical engineering department. Um, my question, I guess, segues from uh, Nick's question, management and leadership. And that goes, I think, uh, some aspects of leadership are more exciting than others. So how do you go about motivating yourself and others about around you in executing those boring tasks? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's, it's just like homework in some classes. Uh, some parts of it are exciting and some parts of it are just plain tough and boring. Uh, it's the same thing. You, you, have to, you, know, you have to realize that for the entire institution to run well, you've got to dot the I's and cross the T's and do that part of it as well. And yes, you can say, well, that's boring. So before I came over here, I was going through a, a stack of letters, for example, to alumni. Um, their thank you letters for gifts and various other things. So this could sound like your typical boring task. Um, they want to be hand signed, um, but so what? Um, you know, so I can't put them on the auto pen because um, smart people will recognize that they've been signed <laughs> by the auto pen and not by me. Um, so what do I do? Well, I go through that stack of letters now. I've been in the job long enough. I know thousands and thousands of alumni. So I see a letter there. Um, you know, it's by somebody, for example, who's given us a gift um, that we've used for the Energy Institute. So I can write a little note on that that says, you know, our announcement of the Energy Institute was really well received, and we couldn't have done it without you. Um, so you find ways to add value even to a process that otherwise um, looks quite, um, quite mundane. You also have to delegate. Um, I think one of the lessons you learn in any larger thing, delegate, delegate, delegate. If you keep everything to yourself, the larger the organization, you can never advance to lead a larger organization. You know, the university's budget this year will be about $3.8 billion, um, not counting the hospitals. That obviously has to be delegated. It's thousands of people spend that money because individual faculty will make many of those decisions. Um, so you've got to hire people. You've got to empower them, which means, by the way, you will hire some people. They will not do some parts of the job as well as you will do it. They will make mistakes. Sometimes you've got to say, you know, that was really a bad decision. You really made a blunder there. Let's figure out how not to do it again. And sometimes you just say, well, that's a B plus decision. It's not what I would have done, but we're going to let it go. Um, and, and I think that, that helps so you can organize it so that you're not overwhelmed by the details. You know, the most fascinating thing I read once in one of these Stephen Covey books, so he's got all these books on helping you manage time, but in one of the books he has this wonderful um, matrix where he's got the, divided into quadrants, and on one axis he has how time critical is a particular issue, and on the other axis he has how important is the issue? And he points out that many leaders spend too much time on the things that are unimportant but time critical. And that really you need to reserve the time for things that are critically important to the future of the institution but are not time critical. So that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. And whether it's time in the shower, time while I'm exercising, time while I'm walk, walking, taking a walk around the neighborhood or doing whatever, 
that's the absolutely uh, crucial thing, to keep enough of your, and that was true. I found that was true in my research. It's true in a leadership position. In my research, I was thinking about, what's the next thing we gotta work on here? How do we make this kind of breakthrough in this concept? In, in a leadership and institution, it's, you know, all right, we wanna get this energy thing going. How do we organize it? Who should lead it? What should the major activities be? And so I'm always thinking about those kinds of things when I have my off time. And that way, I get to ensure that I'm focusing enough on the things that will ma really make a difference in the long-term trajectory of the institution. So speaking of time, we are pretty much out. And um, we had John till 3.15. And we, we wanted to have a reception. And just making communication with some of my colleagues here, we thought, let's, let's just keep going with the questions. Um, and use up some of that reception time. So we've done that, and I hope that was um, in everybody's best interest. Um, thank you all very much for great questions. They were really Terrific. good, um, right on the money. Two important announcements. One is that the next in this series will be Miriam Rivera. And there's Ooh. posters, flyers down here. Um, she's an amazing woman. She has four Stanford degrees, three graduate degrees from three different schools. So she, she knows the spectrum and is uh, really a tremendous individual, former vice president of Google. Um, so I encourage you all to come. That's February 23rd at 4.15. Second quick announcement is we love to get very brief input just to know who did we reach, how did we reach you, is this a good idea or not? And I will close just by thanking John very, very much. It really was inspiring to hear your insights into leadership and really appreciate you taking the time to do it. So. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you all.